in a world where jobs are how most people make money. One man, one desire, one challenge dares to break the mold. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where we don't work for money. Money works for us. Coming soon. Viewer discretion advised. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where cash flow is king. Real estate investing, the means, so you can enjoy your retirement dreams. This is the show where we cut right to the chase. No sales pitch, no long monologues, just simple how-to real estate investing advice, so you can earn the passive income you need to enjoy your retirement today. And now, your host and chief old dog, Bill Manacero. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. I'm your host, Bill Manacero, and this is the show where 50-plusers and anyone else who wants to join us get solid, no-sales-pitch real estate investing advice to help generate real cash flow. This podcast airs twice weekly on Mondays and Fridays, and if you aren't already a subscriber, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, type in Old Dogs, spelled D-A-W-G-S, Find our podcast and subscribe. Well, we got a great show for you today. Uh, we have a, a very experienced uh, uh, real estate investor who has uh, has a great story to share, and uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. But I think one of those areas will be uh, zeroing in on market changes and how do you anticipate those. I'm talking about Max Sharkansky, and uh, he is the co-founder and managing partner. Uh, who oversees all aspects of acquisition, disposition, and property analysis for Tryon Properties. Since the firm's founding in 2005, Max has led the acquisition, renovation, and disposition of more than $1 billion in mismanaged, distressed, or undervalued multifamily assets, averaging uh, IRR in excess of 25%. Now, Max, along with his partner, uh, Mitch Pascover, uh, initially formed the company to acquire properties in Los Angeles. Max led Tryon in the execution of several acquisitions in the firm's first two years of existence, exiting the portfolio prior to the economic crisis. With cash on hand and no resources tied up in workouts, Max led an acquisition strategy targeting distressed debt secured by multifamily REOs, which led to the ultra-successful campaign of the acquisition of 20 properties throughout the downturn. Well, Max, welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's great having you on. Um, you have a, a great story to tell, and uh, I didn't want to read through the whole bio here and give you some a chance to actually talk about it yourself, but uh, maybe you can just give us a, you know, a little bit on your background and how you even got into real estate in the first place. I was graduating college in 01, and that was right around the time of the dot-com bust. And I wanted to be somewhere in the finance world, and I loved the idea of 
tangible assets. Dot uh, coms had just gone up in smoke because they were anything but tangible. And real estate was is as tangible as it gets. And I've just you know if you look at it, see it, feel it, touch it, it's just it just you know at the time to a young college kid it just seemed like the coolest, most awesome business. And um, it's worked out ever since. Oh, that's awesome. And and you were in the um, were you in the tech world yourself, or did you have any experience in the tech world? No, zero. I've never worked in tech. Um, I, my first job out of college was at. Marcus and Millichap. I uh, worked in brokerage at Marcus for a handful of years, started buying my last year there, and uh, then left to the buy side in 06. Well, what's really compelling in your story is the fact that you, um, you and almost anticipated that uh, the crash was coming, and uh, you positioned yourself in such a way to take full advantage of that. I mean, for a young guy, you know, that fresh out of college for the most part, um, how did that happen? And, and how did you, how did you know that this, uh, this was coming? Well, unlike right now where things seem to be happening very, very fast back then it was much slower. Um, the first subprime lenders started to fold in 07. Capital markets started to shift rapidly uh, where all the BP's buyers went away in summer of 07. Um, you know, you just had one thing after the next. In January of 2008, my partner and I had a conversation saying, you know, this is going in one direction and it's not up. Uh, we saw rents starting to go down a little bit, vacancies starting to creep up. Everything from Macro to micro was going in the wrong direction. So we sold our entire portfolio. Um, pretty much everything before the Lehman crash in 2008. We had a couple properties trickle into the first quarter of 2009. One of them, believe it or not, we actually sold at a profit, which just goes to show you how important it is to value add and drive NOI. Um, we had increased the NOI by such a huge margin that we sold the property at a profit, even though cap rates were 150 basis points higher. And the other property, we took a small loss, but that was just me and my partner who took a loss. We didn't have any investors harmed in that deal. Um, and then, you know, we were sitting on cash for a few months because we had already changed our acquisition strategy from buying value-add multifamily to targeting non-performing debt secured by multifamily as well as multifamily REOs. And we started, as we were selling in 08, we, we shifted away from buying deals from owners through the brokerage community to just calling banks and trying to buy debt. Interesting, interesting. And so all of your um, acquisitions were multifamily properties, right? You didn't have other types of commercial? Correct. And, um, you know, at least from the people that I've talked to and I know, I mean, the... the Multifamily, you know, out of all the various asset classes, uh, seemed to do a little bit better than uh, maybe a lot better than the single family world, um, where a lot of people just got crushed. Mm -hmm. um, did you see that as well? Of course, of course. The single family world completely melted down. Some of the most qualified people out there couldn't get loans unless they put down extraordinarily high down payments. Um, multifamily fared okay. You know, people were paying their rent and they didn't want to get evicted. Of course you had vacancies go up and you had rents come down a little bit, but you know, it's nothing like you see an office or retail where it just completely crashes. So 
in major markets, you saw occupancies go from 96, 97 to 90, 89, 90, 91. Rents go down 10 to 20%. You have some concessions. Yeah, you bleed for a little bit and it hurts, but uh, it didn't take that long, you know, maybe a year or two, and then things start to recover. Right. Uh, do you think, did you see a lot of folks moving from, you know, single family, whether it's foreclosures or other issues, moving into multifamily uh, from single family properties in terms of, uh, you know, more on the tenant side of things? Of course, of course, people can buy. So I think we went from one of the highest homeownership rates in U.S. history to one of the lowest. And you had that phenomenon happening. And then as the economy started to recover, you started to have household formation again. And uh, what household formation means for those people who don't know that expression, it's when new households are formed, whether that's people moving out of their parents' house or people moving away from roommates and new households are formed. So um, early in the GFC, of course, you know, that went negative where people would bunk up and go home to their families. But um, by the time we were probably, I don't know, end of 10 or early 11, it started to go the other way and became positive. And um, you went to, did you go to school in Southern California as well? Loyola Marymount University. Okay. And uh, so when you went into, you started working for Marcus Millichap, were you already going in with the idea that you were going to become an investor or were you, um, you know, looking more just for you know, being in the real estate world. I think the latter, just being in the real estate world. And I was so young and so green and I heard how much money brokers were making. And I thought, Hey, I want to do that. You know, and the whole thing about not making a salary didn't really scare me. Uh, I thought, okay, if I can make a lot more money, but I control my income. Sure. That sounds good. And I went into brokerage and, um, fared pretty well at it and saved up a couple bucks, uh, as did my partner and bought our first building. And that money that you save up goes away pretty fast. So then we started to pass the hat and raise capital. Awesome. That's great. Uh, so you were working, you were seeing all the, the guys out there that were your clients, I'm sure, that were just uh, making a killing. And, and why, why, are we, why are we doing that, right? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. That, that's exactly it. That was exactly the conversation we had. We said, Hey, we're doing great. You know, you know, we make these commission checks. We close a deal. You make like 50 grand. Uh, but our client just made $2 million. So how do we get into their shoes? And that was the exact conversation. And did you start investing in LA area? Yes, of course. Like everybody else, it was a very organic growth. Um, things have changed now, you know, where people start the business, maybe sitting in Manhattan or San Francisco and they start buying in Texas. But back then it was different and it was just very organic. I was a broker at Marcus brokering multifamily in the San Fernando Valley. So naturally we started buying multifamily in the San Fernando Valley. Right. I had access to off-market deals. I had market knowledge. I knew every building on every corner. I knew every rent. Um, so that's where we started buying. And we bought a portfolio in the Valley and kept buying in the Valley. And then during the GFC, uh, that sort of sub-market focus is impossible. So you start going wherever the asset managers take you. And that was all throughout LA, You know, mostly rougher parts of LA because that's the multifamily that had 
distress is product that's owned by slumlords. It's not operated very well and it's in rough areas. So it got hit really hard and we bought a lot of NPLs there. And then we started to go to other markets within California. We got comfortable, you know, going to San Diego. We said, hey, it's a hundred miles away. How hard could this be? And we then went to Fresno, Sacramento. And then when the market started to recover and we went back to the value add business and stopped buying notes and REOs, we started going to the East Bay and you know started playing more of the growth story as opposed to the recovery story. Uh, so we went to the East Bay where they were seeing a lot of growth because of uh, people exiting San Francisco who couldn't afford San Francisco. And then we jumped state lines and we went to Portland, Oregon. And Portland was seeing a tremendous amount of growth because of people from Seattle and San Francisco. And now I'm in Miami covering the Southeast and LA offices covering the Western states. So uh, one step at a time. Wow. Very organic. Where are the bulk of your properties right now? Oh, they're everywhere. Uh, We have a, a portfolio in California, Oregon, Colorado, uh, building out a portfolio in the Southeast. We've got a, a couple of assets with our third in contract in Florida. Um, we're buying two right now in Georgia, one in South Carolina. One in North Carolina. Wow. Awesome. How many doors roughly? Um, right now we've got a little over 4,000, uh, about 43, 4,400 with another 23, 2,400 in contract. So by July 1, um, first half of the year will be about six and a half thousand. Awesome. And, and talk about today's market. I mean, what, what are you seeing? Okay, you've gone from seeing, you know, the Great Recession up through, um, you know, just repositioning yourself and, and you even went into, you know, it sounds like lower income. Um, where do you see us right now, especially in the multifamily uh, markets? In terms of the economic cycle? Yes. And just, yeah, just uh, what kind of opportunities out there, um, yeah, as well as where it may be going. So what's interesting is you have a lot of people pulling back, right? They're just really scared with what's going on with interest rates, CPI. Um, I'm 42 years old and people my age have never seen this kind of inflation. Um, I was born in 79 when this was happening. And it really hasn't happened since. So there's a lot of fear out there. But, and the fear is interest rates, right? Like, oh my God, we're buying these five caps, but rates might go to six, seven, 8%. What's going to happen? But inflation pushes up rents. And I think there's just going to be this foot race now between rents and interest rates. And if you can control your interest rates while you're buying and you're buying in high growth markets that will also have the tailwind of inflation, you'll be fine. So like right now, you know, we're buying five assets, uh, one in Miami, one in Atlanta, one in Savannah, one in Denver, or sorry, uh, two in Denver, right? So these are very high growth markets with high in-migration that will undoubtedly benefit from uh, both the in-migration, uh, the creation of jobs, and the current macro environment. And if we can manage our interest rate exposure, we'll do fine. And what kind of debt are, are you looking at? Uh, I mean, are you are you doing you know Fannie Freddie? Are you um, leaning heavier on private? Uh, what 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 what's your your strategy in terms of that uh, dealing with those creeping up interest rates? 
So the problem is, I lo- we love going with agencies, but the problem is with cap rates where they are today, you can't get any meaningful proceeds from the agencies. So we're buying with 100% bridge. If this was a year and a half ago, two years ago, it would be almost primarily agencies, all agencies, because you're buying stuff at like four and a half, five caps and value adding from there. And you could get a loan in the threes and you know you can get 70 to... 75% loan to value and you're fine. Uh, but that doesn't exist right now because people are still buying three and a half caps and the market hasn't really moved yet. Uh, and the cost of capital is five to 6%. So, well, not now, but it's going to be five to 6%. So uh, you have to buy with bridge, but you can manage the interest rate exposure by buying rate caps, buying swaps, uh, getting less debt, lower loan to value, right? Uh, the less debt you have, the less interest rate exposure you have automatically. And these are all the things we look at. Hmm, interesting. And w- what kind of terms are you doing with those bridge loans? Um, usually a three plus one plus one, where, which means a three-year term with two one-year extensions. Uh, the first year does not have a test, which means you can just automatically get the extension if you pay a small fee. So it's a de facto four-year loan. Four years really gives you enough time to get in and out of any kind of a downturn. And does that correspond with your hold for those uh, same properties? It does. It does. But in a perfect world where markets are holding, um, we typically refi out within 18 to 24 months. Uh, We execute on the business plan renovations, increase in NOI by month 18, month 20, we're under app to refinance it and do something a little more permanent. Interesting. And, and what, uh, what kind of preferred uh, rates are you offering uh, to your investors? We're typically offering an 8% preferred return, 75-25 thereafter with a catch-up to the manager. Got it. And uh, are you you're still utilizing the the value add strategy, right? We are. Are, are you finding off market properties, or are you uh, you know these these are just uh, you know, things being brought to you by your brokers? And I mean, I mean, I mean, are they where, where are you getting these properties? Because I you know I talked to a lot of people that are having trouble finding you know deals that make sense right now. We have a focus on off-market. We always try to buy as much off-market as possible, um, but it's impossible to only buy off-market, and you know, especially if you want to scale. So if we're looking at marketed deals, just to give you an example, coincidentally, in January, right after the big national multi-housing conference in January, a lot of deals come out, and both our LA office and Miami office were both looking at about 50 deals. Of the 50, they found 10 of them to be viable. Of the 10, we figured we would buy two or three out of each office, and that's what wound up transpiring. Wow. Wow. And and what's sort of the ideal criteria on the, on the deals that you do go for? Um, that's a great question. Our North Star, our most important metric in analysis, is untrended return on cost. So if you snap your fingers and mark all the rents to market post-renovation, you add all of your capital expenditures to the purchase price, what is your cap rate based on those numbers? So what is your untrended return on cost? And then, of course, we add in some conservative 
growth assumptions. And that's how we get our trend of return on cost. Um, and that typically spits out an IRR somewhere in the high teens or uh, 20 plus. We're typically not buying unless it's at least a 17 and a half, 18 gross. And, and, and what are your hottest markets right now? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, Florida is just unbelievable. The in-migration happening here is unbelievable. What parts of Florida? Orlando and uh, very soon in Miami. Hmm. Miami, really? Interesting. Okay. Oh, Miami has insane in-migration. I think in terms of rent growth, depending on what data service you use, uh, one of the ones that I like has Miami as the number two rent growth market in the country behind Tampa. Number three being Orlando. Those three places have something in common. <laughs> <laughs> Anything in Jacksonville? No, not yet, but I hear great things. You know, everyone's talking about it. Right. Um, but Jacksonville's supposed to be awesome. And the mountain states, Denver. Denver, Colorado has just been tremendous. Um, we, you know, Portland gets a lot of bad headlines, but we're not in downtown Portland. We're in the suburbs. And we've seen huge rent growth in Portland, Oregon, um, within California, you know, California, again, horrible headlines, California exodus, lost 1% of its population. But what people don't know is that there's a lot of migration within California, people who don't want to leave, they want to stay closer to their families. And you have a lot of people from San Francisco and the Bay Area going to Sacramento. So Sacramento's had huge rent growth. A lot of people from LA going to Orange County, Inland Empire, massive rent growth. So there, there are a lot of very interesting places in the country. Are you finding good deals in some of the harder hit areas in California? We're not really trans. We're not transacting there. We're not buying in the Bay Area right now. We're not buying in LA. We, we've written a few offers at numbers that we felt would make sense for us, but it's just not going to fall to that number. Right, right. Yeah, it's still Someone's going to outbid us there. Yeah, because I mean, that's a lot of people are just watching California here, especially with, as you say, you know, the declining population and, and you know, the taxes going up, all the other issues there um, that uh, there there could, you know, could be some some deals somewhere in there, but uh, I, I have yet to see anything <laughs> that looks all that appealing. But um, right, exactly. Well, you're are you in Orange County? Yeah, yeah, I am. So you see it? I mean, you even see the immigration? Oh, big time, big time. Yeah, and uh, it is. Uh, yeah, it's it's strange. There's there's it just depends on the area. Um, like you said, you know, Sacramento is a hot area right now. That that whole that whole area there. Um, uh, but uh, I don't know down in, in Orange County, it's it's eh, the, you know it's, it's just uh, you know still getting top dollar for for properties here, and uh, it's uh, hasn't slowed down, and you know and then that the and just the general housing market. Yep, crazy, absolutely crazy. Well, you know, you've been doing this for for a while here, and you've definitely have gone through you know one one tough economic period, and and possibly you know maybe enduring another. I mean, definitely in, inflation is crazy. I heard eight point five today. Um, you know, the, this is uh, this is pretty pretty uh, intense, and uh, 
are you changing your, your some of your strategies as a result of inflation? Um, I know you mentioned a little bit regarding interest rates and so forth, but what about just the the impact on you know your tenants and so forth that are, are having to deal with the inflation uh, numbers here? Um, I think interest rate management is really the number one issue for us. Uh, with regard to our tenants, you know, we try to do what we can to accommodate. Um, we're, you know, for example, this property that we're buying in Miami, uh, we are renewing actually at a slightly lower rate than the seller was renewing. Um, you know, just, you know, not, not to hit the folks too hard. So, you know, you can do as much as you can, but at the end of the day, you know, I can't control inflation. Right, right. Well, you know, you were you were real fortunate in in order, you know, early on to position your company, and and you really took advantage. It sounds like of of you know just the opportunities that were going on, you know, post recession. Um, what what you know sort of big mistakes happened? Or, you know, maybe some some people don't like the word mistakes, but you know, those things that happened that that really. Um, you know, kind of hit us unexpectedly that we learned from in the process. Did you have any of those types of lessons that, uh, that you learned from early on? Um, well, a lot of our peers in the industry outsource, they outsource everything. They outsource their property management, construction, everything. They outsource everything. We're the exact opposite. We insource and we find that insourcing is just far superior to outsourcing. We get better operations, better construction, better costs. Everything in every way, shape, and form is superior when you have the functionality in-house. So you're saying early on that was something you didn't do that you you corrected later on? Yeah. Yeah, of course, because you can't – when you don't have scale, you can't do that, right? So, right. I mean, you could look, you could, you could try – I guess it's doable, but typically it's not done, right? Like you buy your first couple properties, you outsource property management, and as you scale, you think to yourself, okay, well, you know, can I do a better job? Um, and oftentimes the answer is no, because a lot of people just aren't equipped for it. They don't want to do it. They don't want to deal with it, which is great. There are a lot of great property management companies out there and they serve their purpose. But for us, we felt that we should build that functionality out in-house because it's really only in our industry where operations get outsourced and we found that to be kind of ludicrous to be honest <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that, and and so your, your construction your um your property management all those things are in-house uh, operations right yeah huge accounting team the whole mine and and where where are your offices located um our office in LA is in West Hollywood in the Pacific Design Center and our office in Miami is in downtown Miami Mm, great. And so uh, that that office uh, in Miami is serving, it sounds like you're trying to build out the Southeast more. Um, uh, is that is that part of your focus too? No, no, no. It's pretty balanced between Western states and Southeast. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I moved here to get this office off the ground because we didn't have anybody here. So I had to hire a team and just, you know, I had to be here to get the office off the ground. The LA office, uh, that team has been together for a long time. Uh, they can practically complete each other's sentences at this point, and they all work very, very well together. So, um, whether I can, you know, call them a few times a day or Zoom, Skype, whatever, it's not a big deal. They function very well without me. 
Uh, whereas here, it's a brand new office and a brand new team. So it's sure. important that I'm here with them. And, um, you know, we talked about sort of the, the mistakes and early on, uh, what, what would you say was a, a success that really rang for you? Something that you did early on that uh, has helped pave the way for where you are today? I think our emphasis on syndications and pounding the pavement on getting new investors and growing our investor base has been instrumental to growing our business. Uh, that is something that you do breakfast, lunch, and dinner, uh, constantly going to conferences, networking events, doing online advertising, crowdfunding, anything you can do to build that investor base. Because if you don't have an investor base, you can't buy real estate mm-hmm. and vice versa. If you don't have, you know, if you're not good at acquisitions, you're not going to have anything to feed your investor base. Um, but you know, a lot of us in the real estate business, we're real estate guys, right? Like we want to work on the real estate. So growing your investor base, investor relations tends to be an Achilles heel. So try to work on that weakness and grow the investor base. And, and what strategies seem to be the most effective in, in growing that uh, database? Mm, I would say new economy type strategies online. Uh, we did a lot of crowdfunding back when you could crowdfund the deal and you keep all the investors. So we got probably a couple hundred to 300 that way. Uh, we've done some online influencers, uh, digital marketing, and we've also gotten a lot of investors through conferences and word of mouth. Hmm. Awesome. And uh, do you have uh, funds that you've established, uh, you know, to, uh, for acquisitions um, or are you just going deal to deal? Both. So we have a fund right now. We're on fund three. The funds are doing great. Uh, we're planning on launching fund four by year end. Um, and if anybody wants to invest in fund three, it's currently open. We all, we usually always have a fund open and we try to get all of our investors into our fund. Um, but you know, our funds aren't large enough where we could take deals down with the fund exclusively. So we're typically making the fund a member of the syndication, or if it's a joint venture, then it will be the GP in the joint venture. Uh, and that, yeah, that's how we structure it. And do you have options in those funds, um, uh, you know, as well as your, your general projects um, where you've got, you know, just, just the cash flow people, um, you know, that they aren't necessarily getting, you know, the, the payoff at the end uh, versus those that, uh, you know, want a little cut of the action? Well, they're all profit participation. Um, they get current cash flow and then they get uh, the capital gain on sale. Oh, are you asking if they get a part of the promote? Uh, no, uh, the uh, again, there's there's a lot of investors that are out there that are just looking for cash flow. So they'll go into a deal where they're just um, you know they're just going to get the the higher interest rate for a a, a term, um, and it'll be in a fund or it'll be with a project um, versus you know the the folks that are that are already you know part of the deal where they're going to. Um, you know, benefit at the end. So they'll have the IRR, right. but uh, these people are only working on the preferred. Right. Yeah. We, we don't have that. We're an IRR driven, total return driven, common equity fund. We don't have a preferred return vehicle. Um, my partner and I have talked about it, maybe creating something for people who want that. Cause there's obviously a huge demand for that. Um, but we don't have that yet. Okay. Great. No, it's interesting. And, um, 
you know, our audience are are primarily folks that, you know, we have a targeted audience and we have the people that actually listen. You know, there's a real blend of people that listen from all ages, but our target audience are, are people 50 years of age and older that are um, either approaching retirement or in retirement that are looking at real estate investing as a means to be able to, um, you know, provide additional cash flow in their retirement years because they're concerned maybe there's not going to be the funds there, or uh, they're looking at it strictly as a, a means to uh, invest their nest egg with and uh, to get best returns. Um, what advice do you have for those folks that are you know looking at real estate um, as that means in this economy um, to uh, to be able to meet those needs? That's a great question. You know, in this economy, it's hyperinflationary at this point. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, the inflation report came out this morning. It's eight and a half percent trailing, which probably means we're uh, somewhere between nine and ten now, if not higher. I would categorize that as hyperinflationary. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be careful with debt because debt obviously isn't hedged for inflation. Uh, it's great when you can invest in like a hard money fund and get some really nice fixed income. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Uh, I just probably wouldn't over-allocate to it because as inflation continues to run, your interest rate's not going up. Whereas if you're investing in the common equity in multifamily or let's say hospitality where rents change literally every night, um, you're not getting any of that upside in debt. So if you're investing in those assets like multi and hotels, your rents are constantly going up and you're hedged to inflation. So I would concentrate on a lot of that. And I wouldn't let the going in cash on cash scare you because it is zero going in. If, you know, if you're doing it correctly with a strong sponsor, uh, there's probably very little to no cash flow in the first six to 12 months. But then as you complete the renovations and the business plan, then it will start to cash flow very nicely. Your over-year rent growth is just unlike anything any of us have ever seen, vacancies near zero. Um, other than the interest rate environment, it's it's really a Goldilocks period for the multifamily industry. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I talk to people all the time here and, you know, over 600 uh, interviews and stuff, but they're, uh, right now, there's just this, this major shift out of the market into real estate, and and people are looking at it as, wow, you know, this is so much better um, for me, and and offers so much more. Um, you know, I I, I think that uh, just the opportunities, you know, for people. Uh, yeah, I mean, looking at syndications and and various things. What what would you say would be maybe some tips for those that are you know looking? There's and, and there are a ton of opportunities out there. Um, what are some key tips that you would give to somebody looking for a good syndication to invest in? Number one, look at the jockey, not the horse. Uh, how long has the sponsor been in business? Look at every single deal on their track record since day one. Uh, what were they doing the GFC? Um, if they started after the GFC, which is fine, of course, because it's been 10 years at this point. Can you get, define that for people? Oh, I'm sorry. Global financial crisis, which would be, yeah. in my opinion, 2008, 9 through 2011, 12. Um, so, you know, what were they doing then? And if they've had losses, how do they behave with those losses? How do they behave with their lenders, their investors? How much money do their investors lose? Uh, what was it dollar for dollar? Did the sponsor help out with the loss? Uh, things like that. And what I mean by that is, you know, for example, 
we just lost money on a deal in Malibu. It's a it was an office retail deal that we just kind of did on the side um, when we were coming out of the crisis and. 2011, 12, 13, we started buying a little bit of office and retail because it was so still so heavily distressed. We figured we could make some money on it, um, which we did for the most part, but there was this one uh, which just dragged on forever and we couldn't turn it around. And ultimately, we lost a few bucks on it, but my partner and I cut a seven-figure check uh, along the way and into the sale so that our investors took as m- minimal loss as possible. So you want you want to look for sponsors like that, you know. You want to look for sponsors who share that debt downside with their investors. That's impressive. That's awesome. Well, you know, you're still a young guy here, um, you know, compared to us old dogs, and uh, you know, you've got uh, quite a future ahead of you. What what excites you about the future of your company, uh, where you may be going, or or things that you want to do in the future? Um, growth. The growth is just, it's been hyperbolic. It's been exciting. Uh, we want to continue to grow. You know, like I said, if we started out as a couple of guys buying apartment buildings in the San Fernando Valley, and now we're in seven states working on eight and nine. And that's really what gets us excited in the morning is uh, you know, trying to find that next new market, that next new deal, going from 20 million to 50 million, 50 million to 100 million. Uh, we bought our first nine-figure deal last year, and we're in contract right now on our second. And we're buying a few 80s and 90s, and you know it's very, very exciting. That's great, and 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 with you know rising inflation, um, you know always talks have been over the last ten years here um, about uh, you know a major downturn. You know, how are you positioning yourself um, in just in case uh, things hit really hard? Oh, I'd say the key is debt, just managing your debt, managing your interest rates, managing your debt levels. Just look at it historically. Real estate doesn't kill people, debt kills people. And uh, if you're over leveraged, if you have a lot of exposure to interest rates, then you're probably going to get hurt. If you're the opposite of that, then you won't get hurt. So that's the key. Hmm. Good, good advice. Well, we are kind of wrapping up here near the end of our conversation. We have a segment we call Wrap It Up. And uh, I ask you a series of quick questions, and you provide resources that have been of value to you that you can share with our listeners. If you're ready, we can move into our Wrap It Up. Let's do it. All right. Uh, favorite real estate book? Um... I really loved the autobiography of William Zeckendorf. Amazing what that man did. Uh, I love the Sam Zell book. If you're looking for something a little bit more nuts and bolts on real estate, the real estate game is great. Um, I love the autobiography of Steve Schwartzman. Those are all great books. Oh, great. Yeah, they got, we got a bunch of them there. Awesome. How about just a favorite uh, general business book? Mm. Um, in the last few years, I really read, I'm sorry, I really liked Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Um, thought that was awesome. What a great story he had building Nike. Uh, I just read the Bob Iger book. What an amazing career he's had, you know, completely different. Phil Knight as an entrepreneur doing it from scratch. Bob, uh, Bob Iger did it as an executive. 
uh, super great books on business. Um, love all things Warren Buffett, huge fan. Uh, really liked the essays of Warren Buffett, really enjoyed Snowball. So I think those are some good ones. Excellent. Excellent. Um, how about a, a website that you use on, on, you know, on a regular basis that's helped you in your real estate investing? Um, I can't say there's a particular website. I mean, maybe Globe Street just to see what's going on in the market. Um, CoStar. I read the Wall Street Journal every day, and I think understanding what's happening in the country and in the business community, in the private sector, um, helps at, le- at a minimum subconsciously with our real estate investing. Excellent. Um, do you have a, a favorite app on your phone that you use on a regular basis? Outlook <laughs> for email. Uh, I get a lot of my news through Twitter. So I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I actually have to set, I have an iPhone setting to where it caps how much I'm allowed to use it per day until it turns off. <laughs> That's smart. That's very smart. Um, how about a favorite quote? Uh, I think I said it earlier. It's not real estate that kills you. It's debt that kills you. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, great quote. Great quote. And uh, this one's sort of our apocalyptic question here. If you lost absolutely everything, all of your assets, and you had to start mm-hmm. all over from scratch, knowing knowing what you already know, you only have $1,000 in cash. What would you do with that $1,000 to relaunch your real estate investing business? I would go buy a duplex and then roll that into a fourplex and start it all over again. So you'd uh, have to work out some seller financing, I imagine, with the $1,000, right? I'd raise some equity and I'd raise some debt. Oh, okay. So you <laughs> have a few, few meetings there, a few lunches exactly. too. Maybe Like I said, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> William Zeckendorf, uh, who I mentioned earlier, again, amazing guy, amazing book. Um, he said, when you know, he had gone, he had a couple bouts of bankruptcy and he said there was one deal he was working on and I'm, I don't remember the exact numbers, but he said, you know, we're going to go buy this for $10 million. And at that time, that was like, you know, an 80 story high rise in Manhattan. He said, we're going to, mm-hmm. I found this deal for $10 million. We got to get it under contract. Now I got to find the $5,000 to go tie it up and put the deposit into escrow. <laughs> so he was constantly, he was, you know, the guy never had any cash because he was so illiquid and constantly trying to raise every dollar awesome including deposit money you got me my curiosity going i have to read this book it sounds great (laughs) that's great wow well i'm sure there's a lot of folks listening that would like to find out more about you your company what you do um what's the best way for folks to do that go to our website tryonproperties.com t-r-i-o-n like nancy properties, plural, P-R-O-P-E-R-T-I-E-S.com. Um, or you can email me and I'll put you in touch with our investor relations team. My email address is max, M-A-X, at tryonproperties.com. Excellent. Wow. Well, this has been great uh, having you on, Max. A lot of good good information there. I really appreciate it. Um, we have a tradition here, though, on the Old Dog. We are called the Old Dogs REI Network. So our guests get to close us out with their best old hound dog howl. Now, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure you can do this. I'm sure you can do this great. So uh, we're going to uh, go ahead and just uh, have you uh, close us out. With a howl? <laughs> you got that. That's it. 
Oh man, I lost my voice last week, but I'll try my best. Uh, okay. Oh, how's that? Oh, that was good. That'll work. All hey. right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a, just an older hound dog, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks again for being on Max. It's been great. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to thank you. And I also want to thank all our old uh, dog listeners out there for joining us. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing right now, but the fact that you've taken the time to join us means a lot. And we really appreciate it. Please note everything that Max talked about today uh, will be outlined in detail, including links and, and all that other support stuff, too, um, at our Old Dogs website at olddogsreinetwork.com forward slash blog. And you're going to look for the episode with uh, Max Sharkansky. Remember, cash flow is king and real estate investing the means. Until next time, keep moving forward and may God bless. Thank you very much for visiting the Old Dogs REI Network. We would greatly appreciate if you would stop by iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more visible the podcast will be to others. Thank you.